theyeshiva.net. Okay. As an introduction to today's class, I want to read to you a letter I received by email two days ago. It's from a woman who listened or watched last week's class, which was the Hanukkah class, where we analyzed the two views of Beishamay and Beishillo, whether you begin with eight, seven, etc., and you go down, or Beishillo, you start with one flame and you go up each day. And we spoke about two approaches of how to battle or how to deal with the inner darkness, which later came out in the more or less two paths of Freud and, and Skinner, and really develop or focus on two ways, whether you focus on the, on the darkness or you focus on the light. So this is what this uh, woman writes to me. I'm reading it verbatim. I found your shear to be insightful as usual. You are very articulate and weave your shear so masterfully, effortlessly and beautifully, almost too beautiful, Rabbi Jacobson. Is light and dark as simple as lighting a candle, flicking a switch? I'm no stranger to inner darkness. I can personally attest to how easy it is to get consumed by one's darkness, so much so you go blind. I have been lucky enough to succumb to the darkness, and for many years that darkness has clouded my perception. I know darkness all right. And I also know how a little light can abolish a lot of darkness. I searched for that elusive light for many years, and in many ways I still do. That being said, I find it frustrating that as mystical and ethereal as the light may seem, nobody acknowledges or speaks about how that one little light can only burn for as long as it has enough oil to fuel its light. Is keeping the light going as simple as adding more fuel to the fire? Sometimes for some people, I guess, depending where that fuel comes from. But what if you don't have inner resources for fuel? Some people have existential energy that can keep fueling the light with some efforts. There are people who have to outsource their fuel. The energy is not in them, but around them, be it in meds, in therapy, or whatnot. Does that make it less worthwhile, less altruistic, less authentic? People need to know and hear that not always can darkness be dispelled from light within. It took years of me battling depression for me to finally succumb to happy pills, which allowed for a light to ignite in a normal life. Do you know how many years I've been blaming myself for not seeing the light, for not discovering the light, for not having enough emuna, for not having enough bitachin, for not being grateful enough, for not finding the soul within? I didn't want to analyze myself to death, but I did. I wanted to live and climb out of the darkness, but I was paralyzed and frustrated at my incompetence. Even now, when it's crystal clear to me that my meds are absolutely vital to my mental health, I'm always judging myself harshly for not finding the light intuitively, naturally, holistically, organically. But now, that would be so unfair to my personal journey, wouldn't it? My truth is not your truth, as you said so poignantly. Two contradicting truths are not mutually exclusive. Both truths are true for individuals that you speak to. So what if we find our light through different sources? A light is still light, right? Yet what if there's a third truth that we also never talk about? The one who is actually wholly blind, 
the one who no amount of light can ever help dispel the darkness, for he or she is destined never to see it. Is he or she ever doomed? Should he be faulted for his darkness? Allow me to elaborate, please. A couple of months ago, I went to Eretz Yisrael. I visited the Blind Museum. A simple explanation of the museum is it's entirely pitch black. You hobble your way through many different rooms with a walking cane as though you were blind. And you are blind because it's pitch dark. Thank you. You slowly learn to rely on all your senses to direct you. There's the rocking boat. There's the smell of seawater. The stumble of a lurking step. You have no eyes. You only have the other senses and a stick to direct you. It was terrifying. I felt more vulnerable and insecure than I ever felt in my life. We were a group of six frantic strangers and one guru guide who was actually really blind. And he is guiding us and the darkness. The only thing I knew about anyone in the room were their voices, zehu zeh. Throughout the tour, I subconsciously learned to drown out the strangers', vo- the strangers voices around me and train my ears to listen to the one voice. I instinctively trusted to guide me to safety, namely that of our blind tour guide. I allowed his voice to guide me to the shuk, a room with a wide array of smells assaulting my senses in a sensual tsunami. He had all of us shop items from the baskets, but it's pitch dark. I pick up this wrinkled, rubbery ball. I'm smelling its citrus waft before determining I'm holding an orange in my hand. To be honest, I also picked up something slimy and mushy, but didn't have the guts to smell its identity. Nothing, though, could have prepared me for the music room. It was an empty room. I know not because, I know that because of the echo I heard, so I know it was empty. We all sat on the floor doing nothing, just listening to beautiful Bach and Mozart compositions. It was perhaps one of the most visceral experiences I've ever had. I could feel the music in my bones, the vibrations in the floor, but I don't want to digress. I want to share with you my point. The last room was the cafe. We order snacks. We make our way to a table. We grope our way around chairs, finally settling in a chair for what becomes a fascinating chance to ask our authentically blind guide everything we ever wanted to know about being blind. For the first time since I entered the museum, I felt comfortable in the darkness. I was grounded in my own space. I had this, or so I thought. I'm finally sitting in a chair in a dark room, but I'm sitting in one place. It was quiet, and all you heard was the ruffling of snacks being opened when the guide, the blind guide, turned his attention to me and asked out, he said my name, why aren't you relaxing? Sit back fully, settle into your chair, make yourself comfortable. I was flabbergasted. The room was pitch black, and even I didn't realize I was sitting upright and uptight. I turned to the tour guide, and I said, how do you know how I am sitting You can't even see me. He didn't even pause to respond. Simply, authentically, he said something I will never forget. I don't have to see you to feel your anxiety. I was blown away. I told him, for a blind person, you sure see a heck of a lot more than most seeing people do. The rest of the hour I spent in a fascinating exchange. He told me his life story, his accomplishments, his trials, I was mesmerized by this guide. He was so brilliant, intuitive, inspiring. He saw me without seeing me. 
And then the lights went on and I got to see him. Rabbi Jacobson, I am ashamed to admit this. I recoiled in shock. As I looked at my tour guide, his eyes were half-masked, fluttering, fluttering jarringly. His gait was uneven, his teeth buck, stained and crooked. I stared at him. I was horrified. I couldn't reconcile the wise, trustworthy, brilliant, inspiring, insightful guide with this bumbling physical mess, grotesque physique. My eyes saw, my brain knew, yet they couldn't mesh it all together. I was horrified. How was I so erringly human, so grossly judgmental? How was it possible that the two realities wouldn't correlate? Which one was true? Was it light or was it darkness? As long as it was dark in the room, I could see this person. The moment the room became light, I could not see him again. I became judgmental of his ugly, asymmetrical physique. physique. It was on that day that I learned a truth I will always cherish. Both are true. Everyone knows we need the light, but far few people know that sometimes we need the darkness to be able to see truth, to be able to see light. Light doesn't alter our reality. It just clears our vision. But who is to say it's not the darkness that connects us to reality? It's not the darkness that allows us to let our guard down, to be real, connect with our true selves, to see reality, to connect with real people. And truly, one has to feel the darkness to appreciate the light and the clarity it brings. Because without it, the light can be the greatest lie of all. I may have lost my way a bit in this ramble. I'm trying to say this. Hanukkah celebrates the light, but it's the inner darkness that allows us to celebrate the light. If there was no darkness, first of all, the gift of life would be insignificant. And sometimes... It's even more than that. Our inner darkness is vital to our growth. The inner darkness allows us to see things in a much truer way. What more people need to know, I feel, is that not finding the light may not always be your fault. It's okay to need help igniting the light. It's okay to know that it takes you much more effort to keep the light going. It's okay to know you must have outside forces meddling into your psyche to help you discover who you really are. We all have our individual role to accomplish and our own truths to live by. If you're reading this through the end, I want to thank you for listening to my gibberish. I am honored. And please remember this truth, that sometimes it's only from our darkness that we really get to learn about the people around us. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yes, I answer her email. <laughs>
I answered her email and I asked her permission to read it in the class, which she graciously granted me. I thought so too. The truth is we don't really need another class, right? <laughs> I'm not sure what I can add, but uh, I won't add, I'll just continue. We always continue. Okay, as an introduction, I'm going to read to you a few one-liners that somebody sent me. <laughs> not, a, not a woman, a man. If a person with multiple personality threatens suicide, is it a hostage situation? No, I don't have a solution, but I do admire your problem. Okay, who stopped the payment on my reality check? Well, Doc, I have a memory problem and I also can't seem to remember anything. Consciousness is that annoying time between naps. I don't suffer from insanity, I enjoy every minute of it. I went to a bookstore and asked the saleswoman, where is the self-help section? She said, if I told you, it would defeat the purpose. (laughs) So I really like the one where consciousness is that annoying time between naps. I think that's a very, one of the better definitions of consciousness. So anybody who wants to start napping now, go ahead. It's a great time when a rabbi begins talking and why, why deal with consciousness on any level? Which is also a prelude, which I'm going to continue on. Nature of consciousness and the pain of consciousness. One of the most uh, dramatic stories in the whole of uh, Chumash, and really in the whole of Tanakh, is no question the moment when Yosef reveals himself to his brothers in the opening of Parshas Vayigash. Even the introductory remarks of the Torah to tell the story builds the depth of one's uh, emotional experience. The way Genesis 45 begins, Bereshis Perek Memhe begins, Vayigash, uh, in the middle of Vayigash, V'layachal Yosef l'his'apik l'chol ha'nitzavim alav. Yosef could not contain himself. At the end of Miketz it says, V'yis'apik Yosef. Yosef did contain himself when he saw his brother Binyamin he burst out in uh, sobs, but he made sure to do it in a private room and he washed off his face and he came back as a uh, fresh, vivacious prime minister. Stress-free, burden-free, sad-free. Did I just make up a word? <laughs> Probably. But here he can't contain himself. And he asks everybody to leave so that nobody stands there. <laughs> There's not a human being outside of he and his brothers in the room when Yosef confesses, when Yosef reveals himself to his brothers. He starts weeping and he's sobbing so loud that the Egyptians all around can hear that the prime minister of their country is weeping and he says to them two words, Ani Yosef, Ha'oid avi chai, I am Yosef, is my father alive? And his brothers cannot respond. Kinivhalu, they're terrified, they're overwhelmed, they're agitated, they're frightened. In their wildest dreams or nightmares, they couldn't imagine that this man, who has been treating them so harshly and so toughly and so negatively, is really the prime minister of Egypt, is really none other than their brother. 
He asks them to come close. And when they come close, as if they don't know who Yosef is, he says, again, I'm Yosef. As though they don't know. I am Yosef. You know which one? The brother that you have sold to Egypt. But then he continues and he says, Don't be depressed. Don't even be angry about yourselves that you sold me. Why? Because Hashem has sent me before you to bring life. There's been a famine for two years. Another five years we will have no plowing, no sowing, no harvesting. So Hashem sent me before you to create survival in the land, in the world, and to bring life before you so you should be able to escape from your distress. So you are not the ones who sent me here to Egypt. It was rather Hashem who sent me here to Egypt. And then he says, now go home and bring back Father Maharu. Go hasten, go back there to Israel and bring back Father and tell him to relocate with his entire family to Egypt. And the story continues. What I want to try to understand with you this morning is the emotional response of Yosef. We know what he says, but if we can try to understand Yosef's emotional response. Now let's remember the story and imagine somebody else experiencing such a story or a similar story. Yosef was orphaned at the age of nine. Rachel died during childbirth of his second, of his only and his second sibling, his one sibling, his brother Binyamin. At the age of 17, his brothers who despise him plot to kill him they throw him into a pit with scorpions and then sell him into slavery. Why did he even go visit his brothers? Because he was trying to do the right thing. It's called kibud av. His father asked him, go visit your brothers. If there was ever the saying, no good deed goes unpunished. This was it. He could have told his father, I'm not going to them. Send somebody else. Yosef went he said, Hineni. Yaakov said, go. And he said, Hineni. And he went. And because he goes to his brothers, he even gets lost on the way. And that's an excuse to go back. But he continues the search for his brothers. He says, I'm searching for my brothers. They strip him from his tunic. They throw him into a pit. And then a prince becomes a slave. And this is before Abe Lincoln's days. Nobody is abolishing slavery. A slave is a slave for life. An aristocratic royal boy growing up in a royal family, in an extraordinary family, as a prince, as a, as a favorite, as a beloved child, is now somebody who does not own his life anymore. He is an absolute slave in the house of Potiphar. That's scene one. The Medrash tells us that on the way, as the caravan was taking him down from Eretz Yisrael, from the Holy Land down south to Egypt, it passed near Beis Lechem. And he ran out, he ran away to his mother's grave, Rachel. And he stood at her gravesite. And he asked, he said, Imi, Imi, mother, Lama Azaftani, why did you abandon me? And he meant, of course, not only that she died so young, but also even later on, she, you did not look after me. Mother, mother, he says, arise from your sleep and take care of me. And they see that he ran away and they take Yosef back and they whip him for daring to run away to 
his mother's grave. This is on the way to Egypt. One could understand. One could could maybe a little bit try to imagine the suffering that Yosef endured. In one single moment, his entire life and future was literally snatched away from him as he was abducted and sold into slavery. Now he finally is in Potiphar's house and he does well for himself. He's extraordinary, resourceful, he's graceful, he's successful. As in Yiddish, tzichtik, he's a common tzichtik, resourceful, he's on top of his game, he's on top of his game, he's, he's extraordinarily charming, and, uh, and Poitifar loves him, he confers all the responsibility, he, he gives him all the responsibility, he trusts him, and Poitifar's wife now takes a liking to him. And we all know the story, incessantly she demands from him to engage in promiscuous relationships. And the reason he rejects her is because he's trying to do the right thing. But no good deed goes unpunished. So for doing the right thing, she has him accused of being a violator, of being a disgusting, immoral person meddling into a marriage. And she has her husband cast him into a pit. Which again, this is not a democracy. Egypt was no democracy then. It's a shady democracy now. He is in a, in a, in a prison cell and he would be there for 12 years. I mean, as far as he is concerned, he could have been there for life. But for 12 years, he's in a prison cell without a single visitor, without a single friend in the world, without a single letter that he receives. His father thinks he's dead. His mother is, has passed away. His brothers are the ones who did it. So they're not sending him any letters. This is Yosef's story. Scene number three. In prison, he rises to success. Again, he's resourceful, he's charming, he's wonderful. People love him. He becomes the steward of the prison. And then he does a tremendous favor for the butler. He interprets his dream. He instills him with hope. And he asks him for one favor in return. When you go free, speak to Paroi about my fate. Plead to him about my innocence. But no good deed goes unpunished. That's how Parshas Vayeshev ends. The butler doesn't remember him and he forgets him. So Yosef now continues to languish in prison for more years, for two more years actually, without any recourse, without any hope for, for any type of salvation. How is he supposed to get himself out of this, uh, of this situation? And yet, and yet, he does, because two years later when Pare has a dream and Pare is desperately seeking for a man to explain and decipher his dreams, the butler reminds himself of Yosef's story and he shares it with Pare. Pare summons Yosef, Yosef interprets Pare's dreams and Pare is so blown away by Yosef's commentary and wisdom that he appoints him to become the prime minister, the viceroy of this superpower of the time and Yosef becomes the Mishnah Lamelech, the second in command to Paroi Melech Mitzrayim. Now, it's been 22 years since that day that he was thrown into a pit and sold into slavery by his brothers. 22 years later, finally Yosef feels the time is ripe to reveal himself. To say, Ani Yosef avichai. I am Yosef. And in this scene, one would expect Yosef to perhaps be driven by some feeling of Payback time. These are the people who did this to you. They are the ones responsible. 
some form of revenge, or at least some form of rebuke, some expressing of your grief, of your pain, of your emotion. Instead, Yosef is this serene man who says, don't be depressed, don't be upset. They shouldn't be upset. He is the victim. They are the perpetrators. They have for 22 years been with their father, with their parents, with their family, with their siblings. They have been in the hub, in the cocoon. They have not been cast away, thrown away, exiled, sold into slavery, ended up in prison, accused of immorality. Nothing like this happened to them. Yosef turns to them and he says, don't be depressed. (laughs) Don't even get angry at yourselves. What about he? Oh, I'm fine. So some people erroneously interpret the story this way. And it's it's clearly erroneously from any perspective. Objectively, it's an erroneous interpretation. But this is an interpretation I once read. And that is, people who go through a lot of pain sometimes decide that they're not going to trust the world anymore. And they close off their emotions. Because when you keep your emotions open, you can get stabbed, you can get abused. When you don't trust and when you're not emotional, so then it's very hard to get hurt and you navigate life through your mind. You become a cold intellectual and you figure everything out with your mind. And therefore you stop responding with your heart. With your heart, you only respond with your brain. However, anyone who reads the story knows that this is not the case. And the reason is, if I'll ask you a question, in the Tanakh, people sob, people weep. But who weeps most in the whole of Tanakh? Who weeps most? We have Yosef weeping eight times. Even Yaakov Avinu, the great weeper, weeps twice. Avram weeps once at the funeral of Sarah. Yosef does not stop crying. At every emotional juncture, he goes to another room and he cries. People who shut down their hearts don't cry. Yosef remains mushy, vulnerable, emotional throughout. His heart never turns into stone. A rock feels no pain and an island never cries. But Yosef does not become a rock, nor does he become an island. In fact, if you would read through the whole Tanakh and you would ask yourself, which character would you like to spend time with? Who would be the life of the party? Who would be a person you want to hang out with? Who would be a person in whose presence things come to life and to light? There's no question that on top of that list, there would be this young man who never lost his chay, never lost his grace, never lost his charm, never, looked his, never lost his appearance, never lost his charisma, and never lost his resourcefulness and his attitude, his successful attitude. Under all circumstances, he is a success story. The Torah makes it clearly. To the point that even in Egypt, even in a bunker, even in a prison, the entire evolution of the dreams of the butler and the baker happens, it says at the end of Ayeshev, because one morning, Yosef comes in to the room of where the prison was, I guess where the prisoners would meet, and he looks at Paris butler and baker, and the Torah says two words, Vihinam Zoyafim. You know what Zoyafim means? Zoyafim means they were, not angry, they were, depressed, uh, uh, umetic, 
sad, dejected, downtrodden. It's like if you walk into a yeshiva early in the morning, what the boys look like. You know what I mean? Or sometimes if you go to shul early in the morning, what some people look like, because they didn't have their coffee yet. Or they didn't... Huh? Not Sunday morning, but whatever it is. Now... And you ask the boys, why are you guys so sad? Well, they say, we're still in a halfway house. Now imagine, he comes in and he sees two people and they're, they're just kalamutna. They're, they have this sour look. Zoyev, it's a sour look. It's a bitter look. A zoyeda oiskuk, a sour demeanor. Now, if I would come into a prison bunker and I would see two people depressed, I would say, okay, I mean... Even, even in freedom, when I see two people depressed, I don't blink. I mean, on the contrary, when people are happy, you want to know what they're taking. When people are in a bad mood, I mean, that's what we expect. We expect people to be miserable, uh, sad, angry, bitter. It's like when you see really somebody happy, like, is everything all right? Like, did something happen? Are you not alive? You think you died already? Like, what's exactly, you're, you're sleepwalking? It's the time, you know, it's, it, it, you're, in a, you're in a nap. I mean, if you're conscious, how could you be happy? But apparently Yosef didn't uh, learn that. Yosef turns to them and he asks them one question, which consists of four words. Madua, Penechem, Royim, Hayoim. Why do you look miserable? Why do your faces look dejected? It's unfathomable for him that two people in a bunker... Waiting on death row. Look miserable. He's like, what's going on, guys? Why aren't you jolly? Why aren't you excited? Let's dance. Now, what type of question is this? What are they? What is this? Purim, some chastayra? What are they eating? Sushi? Or, or they're standing at a Viennese table where they're dancing kazatskis on, at a wedding? This is... One of them is soon going to die. This is a serious place. What do you want them to do? But somehow... He doesn't have an issue with this question. The question is even more, what about he? It seems like he was obviously happy. And when he sees two people depressed, it's like, what's going on? Really? What about he? If you were to give the resume of Yosef to a skilled psychoanalyst, and you would say, read this resume. What is your diagnosis? What type of mood is this kid in? What type of disposition should he display? What type of makeup do you think he has? And you know what most people would say. He's doomed. He's doomed to depression. Prozac won't help. Zoloft won't help. We don't even know how he can recover after all of this. And yet Yosef turns to them and he says, This tells us that this is not a person who's operating in his brain as a computer, like a robot, cynical, detached, tough. Here's a kid, here's a, not a kid, a young man who, who sobs freely and easily. And as you know, people who cry again and again are not full of, they, their hearts are not stone-like. There's an emotion, there's, there's fluidity, there's a fluidity in, in Yosef. He's always fluid, he never becomes congealed, that's the word. He never becomes tight, he's fluid, and indeed, when he meets his brothers, you see it immediately. He turns to them and he says, uh, don't get depressed. And you would think they should tell him, Yosef, 
don't be depressed, don't be depressed. We'll hire a great therapist and we'll pay for all the expenses and we ask forgiveness. It's the opposite of what happens. And in fact, after Yaakov dies, after Yaakov passes away in parishes of Yechi, they are certain that now is payback time. In other words, they never believed him that he forgave them. And that's why right after Yaakov passes away, it says that the brothers felt now he will take revenge. He was waiting for Tati to move on to the next world because he didn't want to aggravate Yaakov because Yaakov was not at fault. And they send them a message that your father said that you should forgive us. And they come to him and they say, we will be your slaves forever. And what does Yosef say? What happens? It says Yosef starts crying. He's crying again. He doesn't stop crying. He's a prime minister. He's not crying because he's a nebach. He's not a nebach. Yosef is never a nebach. You don't get that impression. And you see wherever he is, he's on the top. He rises to the top. He's extremely ambitious, extremely successful. Already as a teen, as a kid, he was dreaming about running the world. His brothers despised him for it. But this is not a person who surrenders easily. But he weeps because he's very in touch with the emotional energy of every moment. And when his brothers suspect him of wanting to take revenge and are offering themselves to be slaves... It moves him to tears. And then he says, in one of maybe the most graceful responses, he says, Yosef, this is in Vayechi, Altiro, ki hasachas eloikim oni. Do you think I see myself as God? Atem chashavtem alayro, eloikim chashavalatoiva. You plotted evil, God plotted goodness, laman asoy, laman asoy kayoim hazeh, lahachayos am rov. For this great day that I should be able to give life to a great nation, my own people and the rest, the rest of the of, of the Egyptian people and everybody who came to get food, don't worry, I will feed you, I will feed your children. He comforts them. He speaks to their heart until they relax. What is the secret of Yosef? What is the way, the path to understand who this man is? Sometimes two people can experience the same story or can know about the same facts and they will be sharing the same story and yet it's a different story. What makes it a different story is not the facts or the circumstances. It's how they tell the story and it's what they choose to emphasize when they tell the story. In therapy... There's a branch of psychology that became quite well known recently. It's called narrative therapy. Narrative therapy was developed in the 70s and 80s by two fellows from New Zealand, a guy named White, Michael White and David Epstein. It became popular here in the United States in 1990 when they published a book about it. Narrative therapy also has given rise to different branches of psychology that focus on similar elements and components but what narrative therapy suggests, to put, it, to put it simply and briefly, and to simplify somewhat of a more complex discipline, is that every person's life is a story. If I ask you to describe to us or to me your life, there's a story. There's the story of your birth, there's the story of your development, there's the story of your parents, of your home, of your siblings, of your family, 
of your babysitters, of your teachers, of your mentors, of your environment, of your schooling, of your own experiences within yourself. Everybody has a story. Everybody doesn't have a story. Everybody is a story. And with every day, the story continues. We add another chapter to the novel we call Life. As the Pasuk says in Bereshis, Zes Sefer Toldos Adam. The story of man is really a book. It's a novel. It's a story. And the story continues. We open the story with the first breath we breathe as we emerge from our mother's womb. And we continue to write that story. Every day you add a sentence, a paragraph. Some people who are more dramatic make sure to add a chapter every day. And so, and so the story continues and it goes on. That's the story. In narrative therapy, however, the person, who is not even called a patient, because they don't like pathologizing, is asked to rephrase their story or to focus on certain parts of the story and choose what is the focal point of your story. The facts I can't change, but how I tell the story, the context I put it in, What details do I choose to emphasize? What becomes the focal point of the story? And what becomes the prelude to the story? What becomes the essence of the story? And what becomes the preliminary to the story? Whenever a person reads a story, or if you ever wrote a story, you always know, there is the hero, or there is the the focal point of the story. And then there are, of course, all the nuances and details that are there on the side to be able to give you the complete picture, to be able to draw you into the ambiance. You remember when you were reading those novels when you were 18, you took off school for two weeks, and you read those 1,500-page books, and you didn't want those books to finish? Now probably you have a little less time for that. And it's brilliant what writers can do, how they draw you in through all the details, and from the color of the eyes to exactly what type of furniture was in the room where the entire drama begins or ends in its development. So in narrative therapy, I can't choose the facts, but I choose how to describe it, how to frame it. What we call today also another form in psychology called reframing. And framing is an important word. You can have a picture, a painting on your dining room wall in your living room wall. It doesn't look good. It doesn't fit in. The problem is the frame. Sometimes you have to change the frame. I can't change the picture but I can change how I frame the picture. Reframing is a very conscious experience in life because reframing does not have to do with what happened. Reframing has to do with your thoughts about what happened. And the thoughts about what happened is not about what happened. What happened, happened. How I interpret what happened. How I think about what happened. What I choose to focus on in what happened as this is the story These are conscious choices people make. So narrative therapy, they encourage people to learn how to retell the story in a different way. May I suggest that the origin of narrative therapy, the origin of positive behavioral psychology, the origin of reframing is all in Parshas Vayigash. Yosef could not alter any facts, but it's the way he told the story that made all the difference. And I'll show it to you by analyzing the text again. And these are, as I pointed out to you in Vayishlach, subtle nuances that often in English translation get lost on the reader. 
because the message seems the same. You remember we spoke about the five times Yaakov speaks about Esau's face versus his face, my face, your face, his face, her face, our face, their face. It's all faces, faces, faces. In English, you would never know that face is so important here. Looking at your brother's face, having the courage to be able to see somebody's face rather than their back and what they do to you, to be able to see their pnimius. And here we'll have not an identical situation, but I'm going to point out how Yosef speaks to his brothers and he's really reframing the story. He's really shaping the context in which the story happens. And he's choosing how to tell the story. What is the story? So I'm going to read the Pasuk again. I read it to you already. And just focus on the nuanced details of how he chooses to tell the story. So Yosef says, don't get depressed. Don't even be angry with yourselves. And of course, Yosef knows his brothers. They're Jewish. Jews deal with guilt. They are guilty forever. Somebody once asked, what's the definition of a Jew? And the response was, if he's not, if he does not feel guilty, he blames himself. So either you feel guilty, and if you don't feel guilty, you make sure to feel guilty for the fact that you don't feel guilty. How horrible must you be that you are not feeling guilty? You're so guilty that you're unsalvageable, you're irredeemable, but the main thing is you get to sit with your misery. And who wants to disturb that? There's an old anecdote why Jewish women don't drink, and the answer is they don't want anything to interfere with their suffering. (laughs) So therefore they don't drink. You'd rather come to the event and deal with all the internal anxiety rather than just, you know, drink it off or uh, whatever it is. So Yosef says, don't get upset with yourself, okay? Later he will tell them when you go back to Al-Tirgizu Baderech, don't get into a fight on the way. He knew they're going to get into a fight. You did it, I did it, he did it. If not for you, it would have never happened. He says, don't get into a fight on the way. Why shouldn't you feel guilty? He says. You sold me. And the answer is, Because God sent me in order to provide life. Now here there's a change. From Mechira, he changed it to Shlichus. He said, you didn't sell me. I would expect him to say, God is the one who did it. God is the one who caused the sale. He was behind it. But he actually changes the concept. You didn't sell me. Shlachani from the word shalach, vayishlach, shliach. Hashem sent me. And then he says again, the hunger is devastating. Vayishlacheni. The Rebbeinu Shalolam God sent me before you to create survival in this world and to provide rescue for all of you. And then he says, In the beginning he says, you didn't sell me. After his explanation that God sent me, he's like, and you did not send me, Hashem sent me. So Yosef here is telling them not one thing, but two things. First of all, he's telling them, you did what you did, but Hashem really used you for what he wanted to do. In addition to that, Yosef says something else. Yosef says, you didn't sell me, Hashem sent me. What is the difference between mechira, mecher, versus shlichus? Selling 
or sending. In both, something leaves my domain and goes into another domain. When I sell something, I sell you my home, I sell you my ring, I sell you my car, I sell you my suit, I sell you my website, my company, my organization. It's transferred from my domain and it goes into your domain. I sell you my animal, whatever it is, I sell you my computer. It used to be in my home, now it goes to yours. That's what you do when you go to the market and you buy something and the seller sells you the bottle of milk or the fruit or the bottle of wine or the shaitel and it goes from the store's domain into your domain. That's mechira. Shlichus, I also send something. I send you on a mission to go elsewhere. Not here, because if it's here, I can do it myself. But to go elsewhere and fulfill a mission. So I'm also sending something out of my domain into another domain. That is the common denominator between sale, sold, selling something, and sending somebody. But there is a drastic difference between the two. And that is, when I sell something, the object that I'm selling has no say in the matter. The object is just a silent, passive recipient of circumstances that are beyond its control. I don't consult with my house and say, would you like to be sold to the Finkelsteins or to the Goldbergs? I sell my house. When I sell something, I'm just selling the object. The object has no participation. The object has no say. The object is just subservient to the owner who decides here the bull was by me yesterday and today I want the bull to be by you so I can make my money and you can get your bull. That's sale. I don't consult the object that I'm selling. What about when I send somebody? When I send somebody on a shlichus, when I send somebody on a mission, and I, of course, want them to be successful, it's usually, for it to be called a shlichus, it's usually done with their consent. With their consent means that they have to want to do it. They have to be enthusiastic about the mission. It's even more than this. When I send somebody on a mission, I first have to evaluate if they have the resources, the know-how, and the skills to be able to fulfill the mission. If they don't, the mission would be futile. So I first have to make sure that you are well-equipped, you're well-suited to fulfill this purpose, to fulfill this shlichus, to be sent to actualize this objective. Only when I can determine that you have the resources to be able to do it, now I could send you on the mission. When I sell something, I'm not evaluating if you are capable of fulfilling this mission because you're really just passive. You're just a passive object being thrown around. Shlichus, I have a mission for you. You are an active participant. First of all, there is consent. Second of all, you're not passive, you're active, you have to fulfill a mission. And therefore, third of all, third point is, I have to make sure you're capable of being an active participant. I can't send somebody on a mission to open up a chapter of my organization or a branch of my company in Indonesia if they don't know the language, if they don't have the invest the money, if they don't have seed money, if they don't have the know-how. I have to make sure you're capable of doing it. Yosef now turns to his brothers and says, you didn't sell me. God sent me. And with this, he reframed the story. With this, he focused to tell the story in a different way. He is telling the same story like anybody else would tell. You can't alter the facts. What happened 
happened. I cannot change facts. I could decide how I'm going to tell the story. Yosef says, my dear brothers, let me tell you how I saw my story. I was never sold. I was sent. And the difference between the two is from one extreme to another extreme. If I was sold, I was basically like a pink, uh, like a pink pong ball. I was thrown. You take a kid, you throw him into a pit, you sell him as a slave. He's accused of, of promiscuity, he's thrown into prison. This one takes revenge on him. This one takes revenge. He's used. He's manipulated. He's used and he's abused. And he never stops being used and he never stops being abused. That's the story. How could you not be bitter? How could you not be depressed? How could you not be angry? Unless you're crazy. Unless you're dumb. Unless you're clueless. If you're a human being with emotions, how could you not be furious? You look at these brothers macho men and what they did to you at the vulnerable age of 17 and how many tsaurus, how much pain you had to endure because of them and now you look at them and you say don't get depressed what is this a titanic form of self-repression did that work okay not all pros always works I know what is this such extraordinary repression? What are you feeling, Yosef? Why didn't they ask him, Yosef, what are you feeling? No. What happened here? But of course, Yosef told his brothers, I was not sold. I was sent. I can't change the facts and the circumstances. I will choose how to frame my story, how to frame my life. And here is how I came to see my life. Yosef cannot tell anybody to do this. I could never tell a person how to frame their life and how to tell the story of their life. But I could look at Yosef and see how he chose to put his life in context, how he chose to tell the story. You see, he says, if I was sold, it basically means things kept on happening to me. And of course, completely outside of my control. My father sends me to meet my brothers. They do what they do. I am completely passive. Potiphar's wife does what she does to me. The butler does what he does to me. Everybody is doing things to me. And I am the victim of perpetrators. Mean, vicious, ambitious, crazy, insane, mishugana, bitter, miserable, horrible people. Sounds familiar? Present company excluded, of course. Always. Besides when not. <laughs> However, Yosef says, I never saw my life that way. I saw my life as being sent. What does it mean being sent? It means, and here he's telling us a very mystical idea that's brought in Svarim Agdoshim. Before an Ashama comes down to the world, listen to this. Before a soul comes down to the world, God tells the soul, I want to tell you everything that I would like to send you to accomplish in this world. Let me tell you wherever you're going to go. I'm going to tell you every place you're going to end up in as my shliach. If you agree, I will send you. If you don't agree, I won't send you. Because a mission has to be done with consent. Now, of course, those who are in touch with that level of self that level of the soul, know 
that in a profound mystical way, there is a deep active participation of every soul in every experience that they experience through life. It means also something else. It means things don't happen to you. You are sent to fulfill a mission. It also means you are equipped with the resources you need to fulfill that mission. So let me be very practical. Some of us have to deal with depression. Some of us have to deal with very difficult, challenging moods. As I just read the letter from that special, noble woman. Many of us have to deal with various emotions. For some people who may not understand what I'm going to say, and if you don't understand what I'm going to say, consider yourself lucky. If you'll do it, you will understand what I'm going to say, then you will understand what I'm going to say. Right? That was brilliant. I don't know if you should consider yourself lucky, but you will understand what I'm going to say. Yeah? Welcome to, again, present company excluded besides when it's not. So some people, the first thought that they have, they wake up in the morning and five seconds later they already have to battle depression. They have to battle devastating thoughts. How do I deal with it? I, could not shame, I can't change the facts. But I can ask myself one question. Was I sold into depression or was I sent into depression? Sold means there are forces more powerful than my soul that have overcome me. Whatever the cause is, whatever the source is, and whatever the treatment is, I'm not getting into the treatment, if it's within, if it's without, as she uh, acutely described in her beautiful letter. But the fact that I'm there, and I'm there again, and again, and again. What Yosef says is, I was sent. I was sent means, wherever I go during the day, wherever I end up during the day, every encounter, every experience, Every text exchange, every WhatsApp conversation, every telephone call, and every experience during the day, the week, the month, the year, and during the life, I was sent. I was sent to that person, to that destination, to that experience, to that space. And I was sent there with a mission to bring light into the darkness that exists there. So Yosef throughout his life, he woke up every day and he looked in the mirror conceptually, and also physically, actually. And Yosef would say to himself, I will choose to look at my day today, not as somebody who was sold, but as somebody who is being sent. God, you ready for the ride? Let's go together. I'll fasten my seatbelt, because I know that you, you send me always to interesting places. All I will do is fasten my seatbelt, hold on to the steering wheel tight, Put the pedal to the pedal to the metal as fast as I know, because Yosef never slows down. He never slows down. You probably know the anecdote with the Israel's defense minister was Moshe Dayan, who had a patch on his eye. You remember, and he was once driving on an Israeli highway, 145 kilometers per hour, which in Israel is not that fast. <laughs> and a policeman stops him, and he says, Moshe Dayan. You know, you're, you're, you're a defense minister. You ought to serve as a role model for Israeli society. I think I'm going to quadruple your summons. And he looks at the officer and he says, Adoni Ashoter, my dear officer, look at me. I have only one eye. Now, what would you like me to do with this eye? Look at the speedometer or look at the highway? I don't know whether he got the ticket or not. 
But I do know that the response was insightful because many people live life looking at the speedometer. Am I going too slow? Am I going too fast? I should go faster. I should go slower. This one thinks I'm too slow. This one thinks I'm too fast. But many fail to be able to see the highway, to be able to see that they're on a mission. They're on a shlichus. They're on a destination. There was an Israeli driver. And you know, in Israel, they drive very, very fast, as I just mentioned. And he was mamish driving like a maniac. It's 150 kilometers per hour, miles per hour. And a policeman stops him. And he all rolls the window open. The guy rubbing his hands, he says, you know, I've been waiting for you all day. And he says, that's why I came as fast as possible. And the guy had such a good laugh, he exonerated him. He let him go. So Yosef put the metal to the pedal and he said, we're in this together. Let's go. Every day he saw his life on a mission. He was not sold anywhere. He was sent. Sometimes you're sent into challenging places. Sometimes you're sent into painful places. But whenever I'm sent, there's three things. There is consent of my soul. I am an active participant. I am an active participant. And third, I was given the resources. In fact, I was evaluated before. You don't send somebody if you don't evaluate before that they're capable of this. I was evaluated before if my soul is equipped to go to this place and bring light into darkness and transform darkness into light. That's the only reason I could be sent to that place. Can I alter the facts? No. But how do I tell the story? So now ask yourself your story. Look about your story. And think about those things that hurt you most. As in Yosef's situation, he was hurt from every possible direction. In scene number one, he's hurt by his family. Were you ever hurt by your mother? Were you ever hurt by your father? Were you ever hurt by your siblings? Siblings who were supposed to be there for their baby brother. Yosef was a baby brother. He was the cutie. He was the Yefei Toya, Yefei Mari. He was the adorable one. And yet he was cast into the pit. He was sold into slavery. And a pit here doesn't necessarily mean a physical pit. Sometimes we find ourselves in an emotional pit. In an abyss. You're stuck. And what's worse, there are scorpions in the pit. If you thought you were just in the abyss, there are snakes, there's the venom, right? There's the stab, and then there's the twirl. You know the twirl. A tu brute. Then Caesar falls. The twirl of the, of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the blade. That's a whole different avoida. There's people who throw you in the pit, and there's people who make sure to give a bite. To say the right remark at the bar mitzvah. It's exactly what you have to hear. Exactly what you have to hear. That's family. But that's not, that's not the only one. And then Yosef is trying to be moral to his master's wife. And she turns the whole thing over instead of being honest and saying, here's an innocent boy, to let out her own rage that she couldn't get him, she throws him under the bus. And not just under a bus, under a train. And not just under a train, she throws him into prison for so many years. Why? Because he was innocent. All she could have done is not say anything. No. She accused him. Here, Yosef, stands up for truth and he gets hurt. And then Yosef does a favor to the butler and he gets hurt. Did you ever do a favor for people? And instead of reciprocating, you're all nodding. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Instead of, instead of, getting, instead of getting reciprocation, all they, when they look at you the next time, they don't even know you exist. 
Oh, what's your name? Oh, really? That's your name? Uh huh. Interesting. Ten years ago, you knew my name. So now you don't even know my name. And yet, Yosef is never a victim. Yosef is never a loser. Yosef is never Nebach. Why? Not because he's a stubborn mule. Not because he's a stone-like dictator. He's a Napoleon. He's a tough guy. He's cold-blooded and heartless. That's one way of not letting, not allowing people to get to you. And some of us develop that, you know what I'm talking about? That harsh, uh, thick cover over our skin. We don't even want to get, let them get close to our skin. So we become like turtles. And uh, we may go slow or fast, but nobody gets close. Nobody gets close emotionally. Yosef doesn't do that. Not because he's naive. Not because he doesn't understand ambition. Not because he doesn't understand pain. Pain, he has. Tears, he has. Agony, he has. You know what he doesn't have? Paralysis. He's never paralyzed. Despair, he doesn't have. And he's never pessimistic. And he never surrenders to other people's mediocrity. Like oil, he rises to the top. In fact... The worse they are, the more they betray him, the more light comes out of his soul. Why? Because he's a shliach. He's a mission. He's on a mission. Yosef knows, number one, he's Jewish. Number two, God is with him in all journeys, in all experiences, in all circumstances. Not only with him, he sent him. And he sent him as an active participant with a role, with a mission. You weren't, you didn't end up there as a victim. They didn't choose to have you thrown into the abyss as a victim. You were sent there with a mission. So now the facts are the same. They threw me into the pit. But who am I? I am an ambassador of infinity to transform darkness into light. That's what I do. I'm an ambassador of love, light, and hope. That's who I am. And nobody can take that title away from me. Where do I end up as an ambassador? Oh, God knows. Some ambassadors end up in hostile places, like the United Nations, and some other hostile places. Some ambassadors end up in tough regions. But the title ambassador, which is a shliach, never leaves me. I am an ambassador of love, light, and hope. I was sent... I was equipped with the resources. There was a soulful consent. I am an active participant. My question is therefore not how can they do it? Why did they do it? Why did I bring this on myself? Am I such a klutz? Am I such a nerd? Am I such an idiot? Am I such a moron? Am I such a loser? How many sins did I do in my life or in a previous Gilgal to deserve all this abuse? You know those thoughts? How many sins did I commit in a previous life to be worthy? Please. This is all part of a web that's trapping you. You were sent. I was sent. I was sent to this place. I was sent to this mood. I was sent to this condition. I was sent to this person. I was sent to this experience. And I was sometimes sent even to this chemical or emotional or psychological space in me. To be able to light up my world and to be able to light up the world. 
Yosef has that mindset that never, ever leaves him. And that's why when he turns to his brothers, he changes. He says, you didn't sell me. But he doesn't even say, God sold me. You know why? Because then God becomes the perpetrator. So instead of hating your brothers, it just gets transferred. He says, he didn't sell me. Now think about that. God sent me. He sent me. He asked me. I'm a partner here. And I'm the one who has the power to do that mission. Oh, it's a whole different story. Will I always figure out why I was lucky enough to be sent to this place? Other yeah, other nisht. Maybe yeah, maybe not. But I can't allow that to distract me from being an ambassador and from knowing that I'm an ambassador of infinity. And since the Gemara says, Shluchai shal Adam, Kemoisai, so that means the Shliach has the power of the one who sent him. The one who sent me is invincible. The one who sent me is infinite. The one who sent me can't be destruct, destroyed, or crushed. So therefore, the one who was sent also is invincible, is also powerful, is also divine, as long as I remember that I was sent. And therefore, when Yosef actually becomes a king, and he becomes a prime minister, he still maintains the same dignity and humility that he maintained throughout. Sometimes you're sent to the abyss. Sometimes you're sent to a prison. Sometimes you're sent to become the most powerful person in the world or the second most powerful person in the world. But you know what? You're still sent. You're an ambassador. Because you're sent, you always maintain perspective. You're sent. And as you're an ambassador of love, light, and hope, he can forgive. He can forgive not because he did not sob, not because he did not feel pain, not because he didn't experience suffering, but because he never internalized victimhood as his identity. He never decided, I am a victim of these people who control my life. Nobody controls my life. Nobody ever controlled your life. We decide if people control our life. That's why the Medrash says that on Tuesday, the day that botany emerged, all the plants grew, including the minerals emerged, including barzel, iron. So the Medrash says the trees began trembling. Why? Because when trees notice iron, they know it's the beginning of the end. So the Rebbeinu Shalom turns to the trees and he says, don't be afraid of the iron. You know why? Because if none of you will assist the iron, the iron will not be able to destroy you. In other words, the handle of the axe is going to be wood. You will have to contribute the handle to the axe that will destroy you. What does the Medrash mean? What is this, a funny story? What the Medrash is saying, God told the trees, listen to this, nobody can cut you down without your own consent. You have to give consent for somebody to cut you down. This doesn't mean nobody will try to cut me down. This doesn't mean nobody did things to me as a child which were internalized by me as being cut down. That, yes. But ultimately, as I emerge into life, I have to be able, I could make a conscious choice. Am I your victim? Do you control my life or do you 
control certain things or you're trying to control my life or you do things that in a certain context may control my life but at the end of the day I will determine whether I was sold by you or I was sent by God to fulfill a mission in this particular place equipped with the infinite power of love, light and hope that I am an ambassador for. Now, that's the reason it's Gemara says in Rosh Hashanah, Masech, Rosh Hashanah, Daf that Yosef went out from prison on Rosh Hashanah. It says, Tiku b'chaydesh shoifer b'kesel yom chagenu ki choyk li'yisrolu mishpat alakei Yaakov edus b'hoysef somay b'tseishel eretz Mitzrayim. Yosef went out of prison to become the viceroy on Rosh Hashanah. What's the connection to Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah is a new year. There's a new energy in the world. The problem is I can't embrace a new energy in the world. And the reason I can't embrace a new energy in the world is because I'm in prison. I may be physically in prison, but I may be psychologically and emotionally in a prison. And as a result of that, there's no Rosh Hashanah for me. There's no newness for me. Everything is just a cycle that keeps on repeating itself. There's no new energy that I can embrace because I am just part of a pattern that somebody else defined for me. Yosef coming out on prison is akin to the concept of Rosh Hashanah. It's the idea that there's a newness, there's an openness, there's always a question of what's happening right now. What is my mission right now? Because if you're defining me, then I have no mission right now. I'm just falling into your cycle. I'm falling into somebody else's orbit. I'm sold. You sell me here, you sell me here, you throw me there. So every day I always have to ask you, how am I, how am I doing today? Oh, I'm doing well? Yeah, okay, I look good? Fine, I feel good. Am I good today? You think highly of me today? Okay, Baruch Hashem, I'm in a good place. Now, if you're in a bad mood, so therefore you can't compliment me, so certainly I must be in a miserable mood because I live according to your orbit. There's no Rosh Hashanah. There's no newness. Rosh Hashanah, Yosef comes out of prison. Conclude with a story. I heard this from the Talner Rebbe. The Talner Rebbe of Weinberg, Schlitt, told the story. It was, of course, uh, humorously and anecdotally but the message is a profound one. And I'll ask forgiveness in advance if there's any Chabadnik or Breslov sitting in the crowd. Don't get offended. The Tolner Rebbe said, he was once speaking at the yard site of a Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he said, what's the difference between Chabad and Breslov? He wanted to know what's the difference between Chabad and Breslov. So the Tolner Rebbe said, I'll tell you the difference. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov wanted that all Breslov and Hasidim should have long payas, long side locks. Why? He said, when you come to heaven, you may end up in purgatory. How am I going to get you out of purgatory? How am I going to take you out? If you have pious, if you have pious, I could hop on, I could fetch, grab your pious, and schlep you out. Great. Talmud Rebbe says, a breast of a chassid, God bless him, passes away. After 120, he comes to heaven. They say, no, you were connected to Reb Nachman the way a breast of a should be connected to Reb Nachman. He says, could have been better. They say, did you have a muna, simcha, bitochen, like a breast liver? I tried, could have been better. Did you do his boidudus like Reb Nachman wanted to do his boidudus? Was God your best friend? Did you go to Uman every Rosh Hashanah? Did you do tikkun akloli, tikkun aprati? He says, could have been better. They say, go to purgatory. But he goes to purgatory and the barbecue gets hot. And the heat accelerates. And it goes from 1,000 degrees to 2,000 degrees to 10,000 degrees, as in all the descriptions that some of you heard in your youth of all the great experts who know exactly what purgatory looks like and what happens to everybody in purgatory as a wonderful way to motivate people to dress in certain ways or whatever they do. 
So this guy gets really, really hot, and it gets hot. And you know, when it gets hot, it's not very comfortable, right? So he starts screaming like a Breslover knows how to scream. Rebbe, Tate, Father, Abba. If you ever went to Tzvah's three o'clock in the morning, you know what I'm talking about. Reb Nachman of Breslov hears a yid screaming, Tate, Rebbe, he comes running. And this poor guy is in the cosmic barbecue, not Dante's furnace, but uh, whatever, the Orthodox Jewish furnace. And uh, Reb Nachman sees this man on the barbecue. He says, the host payas, you have payas? Avada, give me your payas. Chaps on his payas, schleps him out. Ah, Machaya, wonderful. Tony Rebbe says, now a Chabad, a Lubavitch, a Chosid comes to heaven. So they say, no, were you a Chabad Chosid the way a Chosid should be? He says, could have been better. The Torah of the Alter Rebbe, your master, you learned every day, could have been better. Spreading Yiddishkeit, wherever you could in the whole world you did, could have been better. You learned in Davin, Mekayim, Mitzvah, Yadav, Yisrael, the way a Chosid should, could have been better. Okay, go to hell. So he goes to Gehenim, and it also gets hot. And it gets very, very hot. And Sebrenta fire, it's burning. No, what does he do? He starts screaming, Rebbe! So the Tolna Rebbe says, the Lubavitcher Rebbe hears a yid is screaming out of pain. So he right away goes to respond. Because it was the story of his whole life. So he comes running in, and he sees this fellow screaming, Get me out of here, it's hot! So the Tolna Rebbe says, the Lubavitcher Rebbe walks over to him puts his hand into his pocket, takes out a dollar, <laughs> gives him a dollar, and says, Hatzlach Rabbi, and your shlich is right here. You should have lots of success in your mission right here. And the Tony Rebbe was conveying a powerful idea. And that is, sometimes people look at themselves and they see themselves in hell. That's a word in the dictionary. What type of Gehenim it is, that people have different types. It could be a mood, it could be a reality you're dealing with, it could be a relationship you're dealing with, it could be a business you're dealing with, it could be a marriage you're dealing with, it could be a child you're dealing with, but you find yourself in literally a hell. And all you want to say is, get me out of here. Or who got me in here? Or why am I here? Or how did this happen? Or why am I such a loser? Why did I do so many sins? Whatever it is. But the most empowering thing you could tell yourself is, the most helpful thing, the most inspiring thing you can tell yourself is, I'm not in hell. I am infinity. I am an ambassador of love, light, and hope. I was sent. I was sent to this place in order to bring light into darkness. Have a wonderful week. You were told that by, uh, by uh, responding gracefully, it shattered you, it broke you. Right. I think it's a very good question. I wish somebody would have asked it. There's two ways in which we respond gratefully. One is we allow ourselves to become a shmata. I don't know your story. But one is we allow ourselves to become a shmata. Step on me, step on me. I won't talk about it. I won't... That's a mistake. Yosef never did that. Yosef always did the best he can to fight for himself, to protect himself. He couldn't resist them throwing him into a pit. He couldn't fight Petifa throwing him into prison. But whatever he could to rise to the top, he did. In relationships, it would mean he could confront people. 
He could tell people what they're doing and what he thinks about what they're doing. He can fight them. He cannot allow them to touch him again, create boundaries. That he never compromised on. Because if a person does, then they're not doing what they have to do. I can't say, oh, throw me into a pit and Hashem sent me there. Kill me and Hashem sent me there. You're like being the axe, the wood to the axe. Yes, exactly. That never. He had a baseline. He had a beloved, beloved father. He got Indeed. Love tremendous love. And mother. Yeah, he had tremendous, years, he tremendous love. love for his father and mother. He had very powerful confidence. He never blamed himself. On the contrary, he never allowed them to control his life. He never let them set his agenda. He always remained free. He was on top of the world. Even though they crushed him. Right, so, so, so that's very difficult. So we have to find that love from Hashem. Because we, if we didn't get it from our father and mother, we would find it from Hashem or from people around us that we could trust. Um, Yosef had a good father, and until he was nine, he also had a good mother who loved him. But the idea of Yosef was not that he let people step on him. And he just forgave, and he said, uh, you know, when I forgive somebody while they're still doing harm, I'm making a mistake. You understand? Now it happened already. What am I going to do? If somebody is, keeps on throwing me into the pit and I say, I forgive, forgive, do it again, do it again, then I'm helping them doing a criminal activity. You get what I'm saying? After the mice, uh, Yosef forgave. But in the middle of the process, when he, when, he when he was on top, yeah, when he saw the end of the story. Maybe even if he gave them before, but it's not that he would allow them to do it again. Das nicht. You typhus what I'm saying. Thank you very much. A lot of atzlach, a pleasure to have you. Okay. You want to ask first and then I'll answer. You want to all hear the answer. You reframe it and you say to yourself, you know, you were sick. That it's all part of planning, right? That you reframe it and you think of it that way and it's healthier. But what what about when you made a bad choice? Can you still rest comfortably by thinking... Um, I was sent all part of... After the choice, yeah. Doesn't mean you should make bad choices. But after I made the choice, yeah. I have to be able to embrace it. Mistakes are also part of our mission. Somehow. Yeah. Of course, when I have to make a choice, I want to make the healthiest, most empowering choice. But once I made a choice, and it was a mistake, I have to be able to embrace it. It's not always easy. Because I may see consequences, and my whole life I could say, what if? There's a word from the Baal Shem Tov. It says, Rishoyim meleim charotis. Chazal say, Rishoyim are filled with regrets. So most people interpret it because they always do the wrong thing. So they're always filled with regrets. He says, no. They're always filled with regrets because they're taking responsibility for everything they did. So they're filled of regrets. Are you supposed to take responsibility for that? You take responsibility for that which you could fix, but there are a lot of things, choices that we made that we say, I did it, I should have done this, I should have done this, I should have done this. So my whole life I'm regretting it when really I have to understand that there was a reason I made those choices. The brothers of Yosef were punished very heavily, sadly. The whole story of Asara Rugi Malchus is the brothers of Yosef doesn't take away any responsibility. The question is, how do I deal? But this doesn't mean that the person's choice was right. The question is, does their hurt, does their hurt define me? 
Even if Hashem sent him as a if Hashem sent him as a shliach, yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't have to do with their choice. You understand? Hashem wanted to destroy the first base Hamikdash. It doesn't turn a Vuchadnetzar into a tzaddik. Hashem wanted the Jews in Golis Mitzrayim. It doesn't turn Pare into a saint. Pare was a Russia Marusha, Nebuchadnezzar was a Russia Marusha. It happens to be that the reason they did it was because of their evil choices. An abuser remains an abuser. He's a criminal. So that's what I'm saying. The criminal remains a criminal. The question is, could the criminal define my future? And I become a victim to his choices, and I completely become defined by his or her life. That's another question. That's where my choice, huh? So if I, if, if I can ask forgiveness, I have to ask forgiveness. I have to do whatever I can to atone for my mistakes, and I may feel pain, but there's a difference between pain and guilt. Guilt is different than pain. Pain is something hurts, it hurts. Guilt means... I have an emotion that usually is trying to take away from me pain. Guilt is an emotion that substitutes for pain because it tries to avoid pain. So guilt is I start focusing, oh, I could have, I should have, what if. It's a whole different process. You're busy wallowing in how bad you are. It's something painful. So, so try to fix it to the best of your ability. Whatever, if I can ask forgiveness, ask forgiveness. If I could fix something, I fix it. And then I have to move on to do what God wants for me today. Guilt just wants me to get paralyzed and stuck and actually divert the attention from the pain to my own obsessions and my own self-consciousness. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.